Ms. Chief Justice, may this please the court. I'm Peter Gorman of the Hennepin County Public Defender, and I'm here on behalf of the relator, uh, Shanta Jackson, who's also the petitioner. At the outset, before I go very far, I'd like to uh, address the issue raised by the Attorney General at page 13 of uh, the brief, in which uh, the discussion is whether this is a facial or an as-applied challenge. I concede that the words that I used in the petition for review were rather broad words, and my words in that petition set up a facial challenge. But in order for me to prevail on a facial challenge, I would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the statute is unconstitutional as applied to any set of facts and to any uh, petitioner. So I think it's probably best to treat this as an as-applied uh, challenge and rather than as a facial challenge. We didn't have any hearing here. There's no opportunity to, to develop the sort of record that you would want to have before you uh, in order to address a facial challenge. Um, and so I think it's best to treat this as an as-applied challenge. Now, before I sit down, I'd like to address two issues. One issue is discretion, and one issue is fundamental fairness. Now, with one exception, this case does not involve the sort of unfettered discretion that Justice Anderson mentioned in the Kind Heart Daycare case and that I mentioned in the petition for review. It does involve unfettered discretion in that aspect of the case where the statute gives the commissioner the authority to decide whether a preponderance of the evidence exists that some unadjudicated act constituted uh, one of the felony crimes described in section 245C15 subdivision one. That's- Council, does the record tell us if there was a uh, CHIPS adjudication in this matter prior to the termination petition being filed or did it commence as a termination petition? Did the CHIPS adjudication, was it filed? Was, did it start out as a CHIPS adjudication as a CHIPS petition that was adjudicated and then the termination followed, or did it commence with the termination of parental rights action in the juvenile court? You know, Your Honor, um, the DHS record contains only the uh, termination petition. But you know, I think there was a CHIPS adjudication before the TPR petition was filed. Um, I don't think I can answer that question any better than that. So what we have here is we have unfettered discretion with regard to the commissioner's authority to decide whether a preponderance of the evidence exists that a certain crime took place. And I've addressed in the reply brief and in the principal brief the fact that the evidence that we have here does not amount to clear and does not amount to a preponderance. You had a case before you called Lionel Lakes versus Metropolitan Council in which you said that a preponderance of the evidence is more likely than not. And you also said that a preponderance of the evidence standard is more than substantial evidence. But counsel, what do we do with the fact that there was um, the original investigation to ch that, that started or commenced in child protection after report, there was a finding of maltreatment and that also is by a preponderance of evidence which was not appealed. What impact does that have, if any, on this Matter. Well, the finding of maltreatment doesn't have any impact at all because the look-back period has long since expired. 
But as you know from your service at the county attorney's office in this very division, that it doesn't take anything for a child protection worker to make a finding of maltreatment. There's no administrative requirement. They just make a finding of maltreatment. So I don't think that that has too much to do with what we're doing here today, the fact that there was a maltreatment finding. But counsel, I, isn't the, the, the nub of the issue though, you might be right, but the way that you determine that is to put the, the commissioner to her, to her burden of proof. And I think that's, that's the, the heart of the problem here is that the 2010 um, uh, disqualification was never challenged, was never appealed, because had he done that, had your client done that, he would have had an opportunity in a timely manner in the, within the 30 days of receipt of the notification of disqualification. He would have had an opportunity for to request a fair hearing where he could have put the commissioner to her burden of proof. And you would have been able to, he would have been able to poke holes, if you will, if there were any holes to be poked. Um, so you might be right, but I'm not sure to what end. Well, I think that's probably why we're here today. And that's the principal issue raised in the Attorney General's brief. And that was half of the ruling of the Court of Appeals. Um, and we might as well uh, deal with that right this moment. And the fact is, is that under these statutes, if Mr. Jackson had tried to do something, he couldn't have done anything. Section 245C24, subdivision two, says that the commissioner may not set aside, a, may I use DQ instead of reciting disqualification all the way through? The commissioner may not set aside a DQ of anyone who is disqualified for any offense listed in subdivision one of 245C15, subdivision one. So let's say that uh, Mr. Jackson brought me this letter eight years ago instead of just a year ago and said, what can I do about this? And I would have written to the commissioner. The commissioner can't do anything under section 245C.24. Well, but counsel, and, and I might have the statutory framework incorrect, so help me with that, and I'll ask the, the attorney general to do so as well. But it seems to me, as I understand the commissioner's argument, that's true, what you just said is true, but that still did not prohibit your client from challenging the underlying information that determined whether he was disqualified in the first place. Because if he had challenged that information and said this is incorrect under the relevant statutory provision, if he had challenged that, he might have been entitled to something even better than a set-aside. He could have gotten a rescission, which as I understand rescission under the statute these are my words, it's almost like an expungement. It's like it didn't happen. There is no disqualification then. So what I do we do? Am I right about that? And, and, and if so, what do we do? How does that play into your, to your argument? The position that I'm submitting to you today and that I believe I've submitted to you in the briefs is that he had no remedy in 2010. He had no remedy in 2012. He had no remedy in 2017. But why isn't what I just posited a remedy? He could have challenged the underlying information. And if that underlying information was found to be incorrect, as we now know, the, the involuntary termination wasn't, wasn't right. 
And so ultimately the county or the commissioners relying on the, the crim sex. But if he had challenged that, he might have been entitled to other relief such as a rescission. Well, you know, I suppose it would be better for my position standing here today if he had done that. But there's, first of all, there's no free legal uh, service around the Twin Cities that provides this kind of work. When I agreed to help this guy out with this case, I had to call uh, uh, Smurls in Ramsey County because they're the only ones that do this kind of work. And they're the ones that gave me some indication as to how to proceed. But over and above that though, the plain wording, well, first of all, if you look at the four letters that the commissioner sent him on July 15th, 2010, February 16th, 2012, May 31st of 2012, and February 28th of 2017, all four of those letters contain the same sentence. And that says, the commissioner has no authority to override, to set aside, to rescind this disqualification. And then the very next paragraph, at least of the first two, but not of the latter two letters, the very next paragraph of the first two letters says, you have a right to seek reconsideration. As I put in the reply brief, this is chaos to send someone who's not law trained a letter that says two contradictory paragraphs, one right after another, and he got two of these letters. And you know, the fact that this guy kept applying for jobs in human services fields, I think is indicative that he didn't understand that he was permanently disqualified. Otherwise, why would he keep going to these places and getting jobs for which he had to have a background, for which he would then get disqualified for? So I think the answer, well, the Mr. short- Mr. Gorman, I, I, I grant you that these letters are, they're dense. It's dense reading. Um, they're dense for me too. I was gonna say, they're, they're <laughs> dense for us as, as lawyers. I, I think they're dense. But that said, I mean, I'm looking at the 2010 letter. If you turn it over or on page two, and I think the other letters track this as well, it says, if you believe that the information used to disqualify you is incorrect, you may seek, you may ask for reconsideration of your disqualification. And these are the outcomes that could possibly result. The first two letters do say that, but each of those two letters is preceded by a paragraph that says the commissioner has no authority to set aside and the commissioner is prohibited by statute from setting aside. Now, I think that we ought to assume that maybe he didn't understand that or we have to assume, well, there's really no basis for assuming that he didn't have a lawyer. Um, you know, I, I volunteered on this case, uh, but he could have gotten someone like me, I suppose, back in 2010, even though he didn't. But I think the straightest answer to your question, uh, Ms. Justice, is that he couldn't have gotten any relief even if he had asked for it, because point 24 prohibits the commissioner from granting an override or a set aside. Point 27 says you don't get a hearing in this situation. Section 256.045 says you don't get a hearing in this situation. And point 29 says it's, if it's conclusive, uh, it's conclusive if you don't ask for a hearing. This is total chaos. You know, it seems to me that it wouldn't be all that hard if they were going to disqualify him, to send him a letter saying, yes, you can seek factual reconsideration if you think that we've made a mistake. But then you have a statute here 
which says, even if you do seek reconsideration, we can't do anything. And that's essentially what the record is that we have here. We can't do anything. We won't do anything. And that's why I have raised the procedural due process but issue. But counsel, isn't that only accurate if, if the commissioner finds the underlying act, which in this instance was the sexual abuse, to be accurate? I mean, that's, that's what got him to the permanent disqualifier. But if he has evidence to prove otherwise, that gets him as Justice Hudson was saying, a rescission, because they did correct the record when it came to the termination. They had said involuntary, and then they rescinded that portion and said that it, or, and said that it was a voluntary. So I'm having trouble with, with following that he has no remedy and that the commissioner can do nothing. Because if the commissioner found, by preponderance of the evidence, that the underlying act was not um, had not risen to the level of preponderance of evidence, he would have he would have not been disqualified. I don't think the answer to your question is that the commissioner found this claim to be accurate. The commissioner found that there was a preponderance of the evidence that the alleged acts occurred. But as I've suggested to you in the principal brief, and I think maybe I addressed this in the reply brief, there's almost nothing here. There's a phone call from the boy's maternal grandmother, and incidentally, it's not unimportant that he wanted to leave his parents' house and live with the maternal grandmother. There's a phone call from the maternal grandmother that says something like this. My grandson just told me that four or five or six or seven years ago, his parents did the following. And there's no follow-up. I mean, they go to Corner House four or five days later, and he gives a different version. He says, no, it wasn't four, five, six, seven years ago my parents did this. He tells the Corner House investigator there were three separate episodes, two of which involved physical discipline and one of which involved the issue that his grandmother told the child protection worker about. Um, but that's really not corroborating of the initial complaint. And then what did they do? You can see in uh, document number two in the DHS record, this child protection worker made about 30 calls to the police department to try to get them interested in arresting and prosecuting him, and they never did that. They talked to one of the youngest sisters, and they talked to a paternal aunt, and the only thing the paternal aunt said was, there was a time six or seven years ago when the boy's mother told me that they had disciplined him for sexually abusing his sister. Nothing more. There's no witness statements, no medicals, no corroboration. There's no nothing. And it's not hard to understand why the police detective did not bring a case to the county attorney's office. And that, in turn, feeds into my claim before you that preponderance doesn't exist because it's not more clear than it is non-clear. But, counsel, he could have also appealed the maltreatment determination once that finding was made, which is well before any of this. He could have appealed the maltreatment determination based on all the arguments that you just gave, and he didn't do that. Well, the maltreatment determination was made in June of 2002. It was, uh, appears in the child protection dictation on about August 10th of 2002. And she said, we're going to mail him a letter that tells him that a maltreatment determination has been made. But you know, this isn't about maltreatment. The maltreatment look-back period, as the Attorney General says in his brief, has long since expired. So this case isn't about a maltreatment determination. And you know, 
I don't know what sort of degrees my client holds, but you know, I don't think he's a Rhodes Scholar. And a lot of people don't understand this stuff about maltreatment determinations. Counsel, I'd like to ask you about that, turning back to the due process issue. Um, under, we, we apply Matthews in this situation, right? Under Matthews, can, can you win just on the fact that the notice, I mean, this is a, this is a permanent lifetime ban based on you know, not a criminal conviction, but you know, a preponderance of the evidence review. But just looking at the at the notice alone, can can you win on that basis that the notice just isn't clear enough? Well, I think I can win in a combination of the due process issues: notice, no hearing, no neutral magistrate, no confrontation, no cross examination, no subpoena power, no nothing. Um, Notice is just one-sixth or one-seventh of the due process guarantees that flow uh, as a matter of procedural due process under the 14th Amendment. Um, did he get notice? Yes, he got these letters. But you know, as Justice Hudson mentioned a moment ago, these letters are not very easy to understand. And I read them five or six times before I, the first letter that he gave me before I understood what, what it was about. And then I had to have a lawyer at Smurls tell me what it meant, because even then I didn't understand it. Um, so yes, he got notice in the letter that came to him in February of uh, 2017, and yes, he got notice, uh, uh, Ms. Justice, about uh, the maltreatment determination, but having gotten Where, where notice, is that? Can I just to, pardon me? Where is this notice that he got of the maltreatment? Where in the record is the notice that he got of the maltreatment determination? Of the maltreatment, is that what you said? Yeah, where's the notice that he got of that? Uh, it's not in our record. Um, in document number two, about the eighth or ninth page of document number two, they said that they were going to mail him a notice, but it's not in our record. So I don't know what it says, and I don't know where it is either. Um, so, uh, uh, but Justice Chudich, I think that notice is just a small part of the procedural due process here. The, the problem that I well, brought... Well, to me, it seems like a big part of the process because as I read the statutes, and I'm going to ask um, the commissioner's attorney this, but I think once you have that first letter in 2010, if you don't um, request that reconsideration within 30 days, I think you're done for any other further job that you apply for. And so... To me, for a lifetime ban, now true, it's not all employment, but it's a large number of jobs that the Department it's, of Human Services... It's anything in the human services field. Right. Anything in the health field. But, but to me, if you're going to do a lifetime ban on anything in the human services field, um, you really need to let people know that this 30 days is really important because otherwise you're just done. Well, if you look at uh, the first of the letters, um, you know, I'm looking at it quickly. Yeah, it does say 30 days uh, in the fourth line on the second page. Um, but, you know, the whole tenor of this letter, as I have tried to suggest, is not very clear that the two consecutive paragraphs, one that deals with the right to reconsider and one that deals with the fact that she can't reconsider even if you move to reconsider, 
you know, this is not a well-done letter, and I don't think you can charge Mr. Jackson with notice that he should have done something. And that's the evil of Section 245C.29. It is Mr. indeed an irrebuttable presumption. Mr. Gorman, let, let, if I could interrupt you, it's picking up on Justice Chudich's point. Um, you know, when I initially read the statute, I, I had the same thought she did, and I read it the same way. But then I saw something in the commissioner's brief, and I'll ask him about this as well, that said even though the, the disqualification was conclusive, and I think this is on page 10 of the, of the commissioner's brief, but it's repeated, um, in the 2017 matter, um, DHS told the petitioner that he could request reconsideration if he believed the information used to, to disqualify him was incorrect. So that made me think, and this is a question as to how you read it, that even though he did not request reconsideration way back in 2010, that 30-day clock seems to start again with each letter because they say he could, he could still request reconsideration of whether that underlying information was incorrect. And in fact, that's what you did. I mean, that's how the commissioner puts it. That's exactly what you did in your March 2017 letter. You said, hey, wait a minute. He wasn't, his, his uh, TPR wasn't um, involuntary. It was voluntary. So you were requesting correction of the underlying information, and they, in fact, corrected it. But you so know, I'm wondering is, so how does that 30-day period work? Because you, you took advantage, once you got on the scene, of an opportunity to correct the information. It's just that the crim sex piece of it was still there. But you know, if the commissioner was internally consistent, they wouldn't have included that paragraph in the February 2017 letter because they would have said, you are banned as a result of not doing anything in 2010. And that's an additional reason why I suggest to you that this letter is so confusing as to raise, like I said in the reply brief, a question of equitable estoppel. If, if they're saying to him, you can seek... But counsel, it's not necessarily equitable estoppel. That's a whole different theory. This is part of your due process claim, right? That the notice is simply inadequate. That's, that's not equitable estoppel. That's just part of a due process claim. Well, I raised equitable estoppel in the reply brief only to point out that there is this line of cases that says that if the government misleads you, then you can get relief against the government. The principal case that I, uh, I'm sorry, the principal case that I cited on that proposition is one of those uh, McCarthy era cases. Uh, I think it was from Ohio uh, where they told uh, a witness that he didn't have to testify at a legislative hearing, and so he didn't, and then they charged him with contempt of so the counsel, legislature. The, the, the letters here are misleading. Is that the, what violates due process, among other things? I think that's a charitable way to call right. these letters. Well, let's focus on the letter of July 15, 2010. Okay. And I want to focus on the two paragraphs that you specifically mentioned. There's one under this big uh, capitalized, underlined statement, permanent bar to set aside disqualification at the bottom of page one. Is that paragraph legally incorrect in any way? Are we on the July 25th, 2017 letter? July 15, 2010. 2010, okay. My question is, is there anything legally inaccurate in that paragraph? 
I'm sorry. I don't see a sentence that's underlined, Your Honor. Uh, it's a caption. It says, permanent bar to set aside disqualification. Oh, a permanent bar to set aside disqualification. Yes. And then um, there's a paragraph. Is there that's, any? That's not an accurate, it's a correct statement of what C.24 said then and says now. All right. But C24 then and now says the commissioner cannot set it aside. So my position to you is that if the commissioner can't set it aside, then any claim in these letters is totally illusory. Well, let's focus on the next paragraph then, which you also uh, drew our attention to. Is there anything legally inaccurate in the next paragraph? Well, I think it's legally inaccurate because it's not consistent with C.24. In one paragraph, they say that C.24 says that uh, this is a permanent bar. And in the following paragraph, they say, well, you can ask us to reconsider. But he can't ask you to reconsider. So is it, is the, what is misleading here, the difference between, or the non-difference between setting aside and rescinding upon reconsideration? Is that it, what's misleading here? You know, if you fine-tooth these statutes like I did before coming here, it seems to me that these statutes and these letters use the terms interchangeably, setting aside, rescinding, reconsideration. There's no consistent use of those words, and that's an additional reason why I think the statute is subject to due process, uh, to a due process complaint. Thank you, Counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Yes, Your Honor. Um, Mr. Ikeda. I apologize if I didn't quite get it right. <laughs> Good morning, may it please the court. My name is Scott Ikeda. I'm an assistant attorney general and I represent the commissioner of the Department of Human Services. And counsel, before you go any further, um, <laughs> just wanted to let you say your name, but I wanna uh, follow up with uh, what Mr. Gorman was saying. As I read the statute, it is my understanding that um, Mr. Jackson, when he received the first letter, would have had the right to ask for reconsideration and a hearing. Correct. Did not do that. But when it comes to the second and the third, because he didn't request that hearing and offer any evidence, he is precluded from a hearing, but he can still ask for reconsideration based on the department's record. Correct. And that also is true of the third and if he applies for jobs in the future. Correct. Thank you. Are you sure that's DHS's position, though? Because I've seen other opinions where they take the position that if you don't uh, ask for reconsideration of that first disqualification, that that is game, set, and match. That you can't ask for it in later, um, in, in later, um, you know, you might go and apply for other jobs maybe two, three times, but um, once you haven't, uh, haven't asked for reconsideration in that original one, you're usually done. Justice Chudich, the statute actually contemplates what uh, Justice McKeague was talking about and, and my answer in the affirmative, that, it, that, af, that when you submit a background study and you receive 
uh, a note, whatever notice it is, you can seek reconsideration regardless of whether the prior uh, action, disqualification, whether it be a maltreatment or a preponderance of the evidence finding uh, is conclusive under point 24. You can ask for reconsideration. That's what the two subsequent letters in 2012 and 2017 allowed Mr. Jackson to do, and that's precisely what he did in 2017 uh, when he pointed out the incorrectness of one of the bases of the disqualification, specifically uh, the, con the conclusion by the commissioner that there was an involuntary termination of parental rights. Council, so, so if I keep, if I, if I'm a person who wants to work at DHS with vulnerable people, or I need to be um, go through a background test. So if I keep uh, applying to different facilities, even when I've asked for reconsideration, and you've decided that it's correct one time, you're going to still allow me to do that. You can absolutely ask for reconsideration. What you don't get under the statute, and, and what point 24 when it talks about a conclusive disqualification, is you don't get the hearing under 256.045, where the commissioner has to prove by a preponderance of the evidence. I guess when we're talking about this case, we're talking about a preponderance of the evidence finding. So under 256.045, the commissioner would then have to prove by a preponderance that Mr. Jackson committed uh, the offense uh, that he's alleged to have committed. And that's what he wouldn't get because he did not ask for a hearing following the first uh, finding. So in those later things, if I say something is incorrect, uh, I'll get a paper review by somebody in the department and then that will just stand. There's no, there's no opportunity for a fair hearing if I've missed my first chance to request reconsideration. Correct, but it, you can also do, as Mr. Jackson did in this case, is submit um, additional evidence that you want the, the department to consider. No, I understand that, but once the department makes that determination, there's no opportunity for a further review, although you, apparently you can get here. If you uh, if you if you uh, file a writ of a petition, right? So so the way that Mr. Jackson got here was by writ. If he had done it, you know, in 2010 and asked for a fair hearing, got an adverse uh, decision from the commissioner following the fair hearing, he would have gone up, I think, to the district court and then the court of appeals, uh, not by writ. Okay. So, counsel, what? What statutory provision says what you just told Justice Tutich and Justice McKaig? So Point if me. you look at two, uh, 245C.0, I'm sorry, Point 24, that talks about the, the conclusiveness of the disqualification. Um, the, the commissioner is allowed under 245C.14 to disqualify someone based on a preponderance of the evidence. And then there's the reconsideration statute, which is what I was referring to. Oh, it's 245C.21, subdivision 3. Is that what you're referring to? That I think what's confusing and where I think my question and Justice Chudich and McKaig's questions come from is You've got this 30-day period within which to act once you receive a notice of disqualification. That's in subdivision two. But you seem to be saying subdivision three, which talks about requesting re reconsideration uh, to correct in incorrect information, it's as if that 30-day time runs each time you get a letter. 
Am I, is that essentially right? That's right. You get 30 days to ask for reconsideration after every background study. The question is, do you get the hearing under 256.05? Right, and he didn't get the hearing here because way back in 2010, he didn't, he didn't follow the statutory process at that time. And so it became conclusive, and so he doesn't get the fair hearing. Is, is there something different than a set-aside that you could, that he could get the ability to work again? So you can get it through the process of set-aside. Is there some other process that allows, would allow Mr. Jackson to work? So not Mr. Jackson. It, it's, uh, Justice Thiessen, the, um, the, the statute also has seven and 15-year disqualification periods, and those the commissioner is permitted by statute to do no, set-aside or a variance. I understand he has a permanent disqualification. And Correct. so one, and, and for a permanent disqualification, you can't get a set-aside. Is there some other way that he could get it, or is it futile for him to, do the, to ask for reconsideration? So it could, I, I think um, one of the justices mentioned, used the word rescission. There's, there is the ability of Mr. Jackson to show that, that the information that, or that he did not commit the act, the disqualifying act. And where is that in the statute? I think that's what we are looking for here. It's uh, and also, counsel, while you're addressing that, what bothers me is 245C.29, subdivision 2.2. And that provides that uh, uh, a disqualification is, is conclusive for purposes of current and future background studies if the individual did not request reconsideration of the disqualification. So that's where I get my concern that this is the, the whole ball game the first time. If the person doesn't understand how to protect their rights, they are forever precluded from having the commissioner determine whether the, the information is correct. It, and I think my answer to your question, Justice Chudish, might answer Justice Thiessen's question. Yeah. Um, if, if you look at 245C.21, subdivision 3, it allows an, a disqualified individual to seek reconsideration and show that, and this is under number one, the information the commissioner relied upon in determining determining the underlying conduct that gave rise to the disqualification is incorrect. And so he could do that, and that's exactly what he did, or he, didn't, he did that with respect to the involuntary termination, Justice Thiessen. How does that jive with that um, language in point 29? Because we're to construe statutes as a whole. So 29 talks about the, the effect of of the failure to ask for reconsideration. I, and I, it, it does say that it is conclusive for future, for current and future background studies. But as was evident by the commissioner uh, rescinding the involuntary termination basis, uh, you can read subdivision three and 245C.29 in harmony uh, and give effect to both by doing exactly what the, or allowing the commissioner to do exactly what she did here, which is set aside something that was incorrect in a future background study, even though under point 29 that disqualification was conclusive. Is that first notice um, defective um, as a matter of law in the sense that uh, an ordinary person reading that notice would conclude that 
there's no point in appealing because you have no chance. You've been told that, that uh, there's permanent disqualification here and the commissioner can't do anything about it. No, Your Honor, it's not defective. Res respectfully, as, as I think where Justice Lillehog was going with, with um, Mr. Gorman uh, at near the end of his argument, there's nothing legally incorrect about what the department said. It did say that, that, if, that the commissioner is prohibited from doing a set-aside and he would be permanently barred if he, it, based on his disqualification. It then said that he had the right to ask for reconsideration of the disqualification. And I, I, I think that might be sort of where um, the petitioner is, is sort of conflating the permanent disqualification with the permanent bar. And the petitioner's confused about it, so am I. So let me just ask you this. Do, 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 do I understand your last response to be um, the, 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 def, the le, potential licensee here, uh, the petitioner, could submit under 245C.21 subdivision 3, let's say, um, an affidavit from various, peoples, uh, various people saying um, the underlying circumstances that were occurring, that allegedly occurred in 2010, didn't occur for some reason. I don't know what it would be. Uh, seems to me if the facts are as represented, he probably loses. But if the facts are not as represented, um, and here are the differences, um, he would then be entitled to a reconsideration and the commissioner would look at that information and make a determination? Correct. One, one um, I guess one example that comes to the, the front of my mind when I, I think about your question, Justice Anderson, is, um, you know, an issue of, of say, actual innocence of, of a crime. Uh, and he submits evidence uh, to, to demonstrate that. Um, th I guess that's the first thing that comes to my mind. There, there are others uh, when something and, and that would not be precluded by all of these various subdivisions of the 29 27 anything else that might talk about permanent you, you'd still have the ability to make that argument but what you don't get is a formal hearing before a neutral magistrate Cor correct you would not have the hearing that would require the department to prove by a preponderance that you committed that act Counsel, uh, i'd like yes. to go back to your answer to justice chudich's question you talked about harmonizing the statutes point two one and point two nine it sounds to me like um, the way to harmonize them, uh, the commissioner has determined, is just to read out the requirements of point, point .29 subdivision 2. It does say a DQ is conclusive for purposes of current and future background studies if, number two, the individual did not request reconsideration. Is, are, you, are you telling me the commissioner is just not going to follow Point two nine, and that's why we can be assured that you can come back and request reconsideration later. No, my. The, I guess the way that I read it, and the way that I've understood these statutes, is to say that if it's conclusive, con conclusive means you don't get the fair hearing, um, and that the, the, if you. I mean, so if it's you, conclusive as far as not getting a hearing, but not conclusive as far as getting reconsideration? You can, because under the statute, the legislature's decided you can always ask for reconsideration. And so to give effect to that provision, the commissioner has to do what she did in this case, which is consider uh, the, the evidence or facts submitted by Yeah, but it's the unequivocal. Petitioner. It says a disqualification is conclusive for purposes of current and future background studies if you didn't ask for reconsideration before. I mean, what's ambiguous about that? So if you look at 245C.27, which talks about the fair hearing rights, the last sentence of, sub, of that first 
paragraph, subdivision one, uh, talks about how you get get a fair hearing unless the commissioner, or I'm sorry, unless your disqualification is conclusive, and that's why I think you can read them uh, together. Right. That way. There's no no question you can't. It says you can't get a fair hearing. Correct. But going back to point two nine, doesn't that also suggest this is this is super collateral estoppel? It's conclusive for the future as well. It, it is insofar as you don't get the fair hearing, so you don't have the op opportunity to ask the commissioner to prove by a preponderance that you committed the act. Um, it, it, it is- But counsel, the, yes. the only way you get a fair hearing is to request reconsideration. Correct. So it seems like they build on each other. Well, if it's, if it's a non-conclusive disqualification, when you ask for reconsideration, and if you get an adverse decision on reconsideration, you can ask for the fair hearing under 256.045, which is the fair hearing that's referenced in point 27. Council, um, I, just to go chronologically, Child Protection gets their report, they do their investigation, there's a maltreatment determination, he is notified that he has the right to appeal that, a subsequent petition for termination of parental rights gets filed, He's represented in that proceeding, voluntarily terminates his parental rights. Subsequent to that, applies for a job that requires the background check the first time, is sent the notice that he has 30 days to appeal and has the right to a hearing, does not do that, applies for another job, is sent the notice that he now has 30 days to ask for reconsideration, doesn't get the hearing, then applies for another job, is sent a notice that he has the right for reconsideration but not the hearing. Do I have that correct? Yes. Thank you. And well, No, the letter never said you have a right to a hearing. It oh, I'm just sorry, says, you're, you're right, in 2010. There's, there's nothing in there that tells you, by the way, if you don't do this reconsideration, you will never get a fair hearing. Right. In the, 20, all, the 2010, the 2012, and the 2017 letters reference a request for reconsideration, which is a precursor to getting the fair hearing under point 27 and, and 256.045, Your Honor. And if you never request the reconsideration, you never have an opportunity for a fair hearing. That's right. Counsel, um, are you, what is the department's position on whether um, if there's just one opportunity when you get the letter in 2010, one opportunity and with no future opportunities for reconsideration, would that or would that not violate due process? I mean, you, the department's saying you've got a safety valve here. You can always ask for reconsideration even many years down the road. Let's say that's not true hypothetically. Or let's say we interpret point two nine to mean you don't have the right later on. Does it violate due process to have the one shot, the one shot with the 30-day um, deadline? So obviously with the caveat, Your Honor, that, that the department thinks that you can interpret the statute harmoniously to give effect to all of its provisions. Um, there, is, there is this issue, and it's not, it's not really been briefed, I think, by the parties of, of, fi of the finality of judgments. And, uh, whether there's some kind of finality associated with someone's failure to appeal the first time. And, and you know, I, I, I guess well, I'm no, not willing... There's no judgment I, here. There's a, an administrative determination. I, I suppose I'm not willing to concede that, that there would be a due process violation under those circumstances um, because if, if you have a, the opportunity to appeal, you don't do it, and there's an adverse consequence from it. Um, you know, that's... That's what happens when you don't appeal. Um, so I guess I, I don't know what 
I, I don't know what their official position would be, but I, standing here today, I, I wouldn't be willing to concede that, Your Honor. Counsel, just following up on Justice Chudish's point, so if you don't request re reconsideration when you get that first letter here in 2010, he then loses his right to a fair hearing. But what I'm hearing you say is that that does not preclude him from later, either, let's take this case, either at the 2012 letter or the 2017 letter, from requesting reconsideration of the underlying information. Correct. And had he done that, one of the things, as I understand it, and I think I asked this earlier to Mr. Gorman, he might have received if the information had turned out to be correct, his, his new information, is a rescission of the disqualification. Correct. Which, and do I understand rescission to mean, is, is somewhere I read in the statute, that then allows a person to have direct contact. Right. The because you don't have it. You don't have the disqualification anymore, right? Correct. The disqualification would go away at that point. It goes uh, away. Right. Assuming, it, it, you know, it, like, let's use this case as, as a hypothetical. If, if the involuntary termination of parental rights were the only basis for the disqualification, and he came in, as he did, and said, this isn't right, it was voluntary, here's, here's the document, the commissioner would have looked at that and said, you're right, that's not a legal basis to disqualify you and there'd be no disqualification. So that, has, that would be true if the preponderance of the evidence was, if the commissioner determined that it was somehow incorrect. Counsel, can I, and this is just really big picture here, um, and it's not necessarily, I guess, a legal question, but you know, as, just from based upon the conversation and discussions we've had here today, um, there's these letters they're dense they're difficult to follow and I wonder given the average audience of who these letters are sent to I suspect they are oftentimes many people like Mr. Jackson who are probably pro se and I'm just wondering whether or not the commissioner has thought about or at any point looked at how these letters were written. Um, I, I, it reminds me of a few years ago, I know Deed undertook um, an effort with some volunteer attorneys to, to uh, rewrite um, the, the, the wording of their letters that they send out because they similarly have very definite deadlines that govern when you can appeal and da 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 and that seemed to me to be a worthwhile effort. And I'm wondering, has the commissioner in any recent uh, time looked at these letters or what your thought about that might be? Because it seems to me they could be clearer. Regardless of how this case ultimately turns out, these letters could be clearer. So I, I do know, and this obviously isn't part of the record, but I do know that, that they look at their notice letters, not just with respect to this, this kind of disqualification, but, um, but I do know that the licensing area has looked at uh, the letters that they've sent. Um, you know, it, it is, I, I think Justice Lilhog was, was asking Mr. Gorman about this, um, about a related issue near the end of his argument, but there, there wasn't, there isn't anything inaccurate about the legal statements there, about the, the, the permanent bar. The I, I hear that, counsel. I'm not talking about inaccuracy, um, uh, and, I, and that's good. Uh, but I'm just talking about readability, and when you're, you're talking about um, justice and fairness and access to justice, um, you know. 
It's something the commissioner should give, give some thought to. Your Honor, I, I, I know that my, my clients are here in the courtroom today and they've, they've also heard you. Um, you know, with, with respect to the legal issue, though, of, of the, the notice itself, it is accurate. It tells him that he would be permanently disqualified. It tells him that the commissioner doesn't have authority to, to set it aside. And then it tells him that if he doesn't agree, if he thinks it's incorrect, that he can ask for reconsideration. Are there words that, that, that the commissioner could have used that may have made that point more clearly? Perhaps, but that's not really the legal standard. The, 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 did he receive uh, notice of the, what was happening and the effect of it and what he could do about it? And the answer, I think, is unequivocally yes. Your Honor, the, the issue in front of the court is obviously one of, of importance and one of sig with significant public safety uh, at issue. The individuals who are subject to the Background Studies Act are going to work with the state's most vulnerable populations, vulnerable adults, uh, children, and on balance, and that's what this court does uh, when it looks at, say, under the procedural due process test, the Matthews versus Eldridge analysis. The, the court looks at what are the interests of the parties uh, involved, both the individual seeking work and the government's uh, obligation to protect the public. And on balance, uh, the, an individual receives notice. They receive a fair hearing if they ask for it. The, they can put the commissioner to her burden to prove by preponderance that an act occurred. Um, and they get judicial review after that, after that hearing and after that finding if they so choose. The preponderance standard uh, looks at whether it's more likely than not that someone committed the offense. And when you're talking about the populations that, it, that individuals who need background studies would work with, uh, on balance, that's something that uh, the legislature decided uh, was significant, important uh, to public safety. And, and in fact, it's really a second opportunity because as I looked at this, um, the, the original child protection maltreatment finding, which was on the underlying sexual, alleged sexual abuse, is it's the same facts that we're working with. And so there was, a, there was an opportunity to address the maltreatment determination, appeal that, perhaps be successful. That didn't happen. And then when he applied for these jobs, it's an additional chance for him to say that what happened, what child protection says happened, is not true. That's right, Your Honor. And if you actually look at the petition to terminate his parental rights, it, it actually mentions the maltreatment um, allegation based on the corner house interview, uh, and that's in the record. Does it um, mention that the consequence of that is not just potentially losing his children, but not being able to work? The, no, the petition was in the con you're, you're right, Your Honor. The petition was in the context of terminating his parental rights. It, it was. It followed, I think, a list of, of if I remember right, multiple um, findings of maltreatment um, that. Were, had already been made and then referenced this new And one. I guess that's a question. I mean, I'm not as familiar with as probably anybody here with how these child protection things go, but so this finding of maltreatment was an agency decision. It's not in the record. We don't have it anywhere as far as I can tell. There was an affidavit put in and then there was a voluntary termination. So that affidavit came to nothing. There were no conclusions by a court as to that affidavit, correct? Correct. There was a, there, the counties do make maltreatment findings that are then subject to, as, as I think you can see. But that's not in the record. No. But the, the reference to the maltreatment finding is in the record. It's in the SSIS notes. And the it is in the SSI, SIS notes, correct, Your Honor. I don't know what that means. 
It's a, it's a database that the counties and DHS use uh, with respect to tracking. But is there a judicial review of that? There could be. If, un under the statute, if you ask for reconsideration and then you ask for the fair hearing, under the same, same statutes, you can, you can get, uh, you go to the district so court. So under 256B045. 256.045, correct. Yeah. Or, oh, not no B, right, thank you. So, um, okay, but, but again, there's no notice of the collateral consequence. None that's in the record, because we just don't have that in the record. Well, is there a notice of the collateral consequence at all about that you would be permanently barred from these other jobs? No, because maltreatment doesn't permanently bar you. Maltreatment's a time-limited disqualification. And thank you, Your Honor. For, for the, Hang the on, Justice Anderson oh, I'm sorry. Has a question. We're not quite done with you. We're almost done with you, but we're not quite done with you. So I just want to ask you about the February 28, 2017 letter and the July 15, 2010 letter. And I, and the, and um, I've been reading these. I guess I, maybe I need to read them a little more carefully. But are there any material differences between these two letters? The, the first one, it's the, the July 10 letter, July 15 letters. I think the first one he got and the February 28 letter kicks off uh, our current proceedings, if I'm, re if I'm understanding our timing here. In terms of the, what he can do? Right. No, that, that he can, that there was a finding and that he can seek reconsideration. Right. And, and so the, well, anyway, I, Okay, I think that's what he needed. Hang on, now we have Justice Hudson. Just, yeah, just, this is another 30,000 foot big picture uh, comment, but particularly since you told me your clients are here. The other two things that concern me about this record is it did appear to me that um, once Mr. Jackson was represented by counsel, there was an exchange of these letters, and obviously these letters are key. But uh, Mr. Gorman was not copied on one of them. I can't remember which it was. He got copied on the second one, but he didn't get copied on the first one. And once you know how a con an individual is, I don't have to tell you, is represented, um, that's just something that I would hope the commissioner would be more careful about. Mr. Gorman should have been copied on both those letters once he came into the picture. And the second thing I noticed in the record is that it does not appear that there was a record of Mr. Gorman's May 30th letter when he said, hey, you haven't responded initially. The record is all we have, and so uh, care needs to be taken there. Understood, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Gorman, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Before you start, can I just get to something I would just like a quick answer to? Is there, are you challenging that preponderance standard itself violates due process, that there should be a higher standard of proof for permanent I, bars? I am challenging the preponderance standard in the second argument in the principal brief, uh, alleging that the fact that you can have a lifetime disqualification from this field based upon the preponderance standard violates due process. So the answer and to what standard is you, yes. What standard do you think we should apply, should be applied? Well, I think if you look at Santosky versus Kramer, which discusses preponderance versus clear and convincing, and the Supreme Court of the United States held that preponderance is used on civil matters that nobody cares very much about other than the individual litigants, whereas things that society cares a lot about are the clear and convincing. I would argue that this should be clear and convincing because of the ramification of what happens here. But counsel, I would say that the community certainly cares whether children have been maltreated or not. I mean, I wouldn't want to make that statement that the community doesn't care, and that's why it should 
be this uh, different level? I mean, because it's it's an obviously it affects people's parents' rights to children and children's safety. So it's a very important social issue. Well, certainly that's an important issue. And as I said in the opening page of the reply brief, we don't disagree that there's a reason for background checks for people who want to work in nursing homes and things like that. Um, but I don't think you can ignore the language in Santosky, which says preponderance is used in civil matters between two litigants where society as a whole doesn't much care about how it comes out. That's why I think in answer to Justice Thiessen's question that it ought to be clear and convincing. Now, Justice Anderson, you asked about whether there's a difference amongst these letters. There are differences amongst the letters. The first one that I'd point out to you, the one from uh, July 15th, 2010, uses the word conviction to describe the criminal sexual conduct allegation. The other ones don't. And that might very well be a reason why Mr. Jackson might not have done anything. He might have looked at this letter and said, wait a minute, I wasn't convicted of anything. What are these people talking about? But this letter says conviction, whereas the three subsequent letters refer to an act and an administrative determination. There's also a difference in that... Counsel, doesn't that cut the other way, though? If you saw, if someone said that you've been convicted of criminal sexual conduct in the first degree and you disagreed with that, it seems to me that would cause more concern than the word... I mean, they both do, but... But if someone said to me I was convicted... He might have felony? thrown up his arms and said, I can't get past these people. I'm going to be fired from every human services job I've ever had. That could be. I wasn't representing him eight years ago. And I don't know what he thought. But there are differences amongst the letters. The last one uh, does not contain the reference to seeking to reconsider. Um, and I agree with your characterization that these are dense letters. They're not easy to understand. And as I set forth in the reply brief, they have two paragraphs, one after another, which are internally inconsistent. Now, in terms of what is the outcome here, Justice Chudich, you've asked repeatedly about uh, the due process ramifications. Let's not forget that under C.29, this guy, who I'm going to guess now is in his mid to late 30s, is barred forever from working in a human services or a health department or any kind of licensed occupation. And that is why, in part, that this is a due process issue, to be forever barred without a right to a hearing because of the fact that he didn't do what the department thought he should do in 2010. But as I've submitted to you in my first argument, the statutes limit what the commissioner can do. She can't override, she can't give him a hearing, and then it's conclusive. And under 256.045, he's also denied a hearing. So this is a big due process issue. Uh, as I'm sure you know that that's the way I feel. Um, Counsel, can you cite a case in which a court has held that the preponderance of the evidence standard is not enough in an administrative proceeding. That it has to be clear and convincing evidence as a matter of constitutional due process. Because I, I looked at that part of your I, brief and I, I saw the description of the Sonotsky case where the 
Supreme Court describes the difference among the burdens of proof and characterizes them. Can you give me a, can you give me a case that supports your, uh, which I think an interesting and novel argument? I can tell you that I spent hours on Westlaw trying to find cases dealing with preponderance and then looking for clear and convincing or something else. Santosky versus Kramer, which is cited in the briefs, is a case that holds that preponderance is not good enough if you're going to take away a person's parental rights. Now, of course, that's not an administrative proceeding, and it wasn't in New York State either, uh, and it's not an administrative proceeding here. But that's the best case that I can refer you to for a holding that preponderance isn't good enough. And I was not able to find any other cases that dealt with, that, hold, that held that preponderance is not good enough in administrative proceeding. But the language what about that, uh, what about lawyers being disbarred? That's a clear and convincing standard, right? You can't dis, you can't disbar a lawyer unless it's clear and convincing. Well, I can't say I've ever been in that position, uh, Your Honor. Uh, I don't have any idea what the burden is there. I'm sorry. And university faculty have to be clear and convincing. I didn't get that. University faculty can't be terminated unless it's clear and convincing evidence. And in other licensing decisions, this court has said. Uh, that it, it, the preponderance wasn't raised, but it said you have to have, we have to put more heft to our determination than preponderance of the evidence. Does that suggest anything about what our standard should be in Minnesota? Well, uh, I have a summary uh, to make for you before I sit down, uh, and it does address that. Maybe I'll do it right now to try to answer your yeah, question. Yeah, but before you go into your summary, um, certainly there are administrative and licensing type proceedings where clear and convincing evidence is required. My question to you was, what's the argument that it's constitutionally required? In other words, would it be unconstitutional for us to decide to discipline a lawyer based on a preponderance of the evidence standard rather than clear and convincing evidence? And I, I've never seen a case like that. I don't think that would be unconstitutional. Since the late uh, 1940s, this court has taken on for itself the entire responsibility of discipline of lawyers, and I guess I would submit an answer to that question that uh, this sort of rule would be acceptable. But well, but doesn't yeah. doesn't one of the discussions of what what is underlying due process and how we determine what is required by due process reflect what our society has has done with regard to these types of things? And if we have, in other circumstances, as clear and convincing is required for lawyers and for university faculty, and more than a preponderance is necessary for insurance agents and for doctors and, and dentists. Doesn't that tell us something about what the preponderance and the constitutional preponderance standard, at least under our own constitution? And I'd be glad, uh, if, if you were to rule uh, that clear and convincing is required, I'd be glad to have that. But counsel, there is a, a criminal case, which is uh, Carrillo, if I'm saying that correctly, where a preponderance of the evidence standard was used, and that was whether to extend a prisoner's time in prison. Wouldn't you agree that that's, I mean, normally that we look at criminal proceedings, we think beyond a reasonable doubt. But if we can use preponderance of the evidence in that matter, what does that do with a, a civil matter such as this? Is that a prison discipline matter? It's a prison discipline matter. It's an extended, oh, you it's mean a the extended term statute? Matter. You know, the state public defender handles extended term uh, proceedings and we don't. Uh, I have no knowledge about that. I'm sorry. Um, let me say this uh, before I sit down. I have a three-part request for you to make, and I think you could 
grant some or all of these three parts without striking the statute, without declaring it unconstitutional as applied. I do think, though, that Section C.29 is unconstitutional as an irrebuttable presumption which denies procedural due process. But I would also ask you, if you can't do that with point C-29, I would ask you to hold that a disqualified person should have a right to a hearing on the disqualifications under the preponderance standard. Jackson never got a hearing about this disqualification under the preponderance standard, notwithstanding the fact that C-27, uh, C-29, and 256.045 would deny him a hearing. And the third part I'd request that you do is that you read section C-24 to allow the commissioner to set aside a disqualification if the reason for the disqualification is just preponderance. I think that if you were to adopt those prayers for relief, you would not have to declare the statute unconstitutional as applied. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.